Well, scouts, what's the scout motto? Be prepared. That's right. That's right. You know, there's an interesting story about this scout model. Uh, it's not just the abstract. Uh, when Robert Baden Powell was launching the scouts, he had something in mind. It's interesting that Be Prepared has the same initials as Baden Powell's last name, and that was intentional. But it wasn't uh, just a ideal. It was something that had very strong practicalities because, see, in the late 1900s, uh, before the decade, the Great War was looming, and soon Boy Scouts, a very service-minded organization, not a military organization, but service-minded, would be called upon to play their part. Winston Churchill referred to this again as it was lived out again in the Second World War. He said, their keen eyes were added to the watchers along the coast. In the air raids, we saw the spectacle of children, 12 and 14, performing with composure the useful function assigned to them in the streets and public offices. Fortunately, that model has purpose also in peacetime. In the latest scouting handbook, it says his idea, Robert Baden Powell's idea, was that scouts should prepare themselves to become productive citizens and strong leaders and to bring joy to other people. Well, in a sense, our message today is about being prepared because when we talk about this subject, the subject of money, it is something that is very powerful. If we're, if we're not prepared for how we will be in our relationship with money, it can control us instead of us controlling it. So this month, as we talk about what the Bible doesn't say, one of the phrases is that money is the root of all evil. It doesn't actually say that. You know, there's actually a few other quips that you'll find about money. Um, one cliche is that money talks, but all mine ever says is goodbye. <laughs> Mark Twain said, the lack of money is the root of all evil. Elizabeth Taylor said, how can money be the root of all evil if shopping is the cure for sadness? <laughs> and one more, money is the root of all evil. For more information, send $10. <laughs> well, let's put this phrase in context. First of all, this writer of 1 Timothy was writing a time when the church has been in existence for a while. It's moved from being just a movement to more of an organization. And whenever something becomes an organization, then different personalities come into play, sometimes some with not as pure motives. It was also a little further away from the witness of Jesus Christ, whose life was all about sacrifice, sacrificial giving and certainly even giving his own life on the cross for us. And so the writer of 1 Timothy is wanting to put out there what the attributes of a healthy church is. And one of the challenges is that some churches, some of the leaders, the preachers, were not much different than the prosperity preachers of today who promise financial gain if we give our tithe and claim it by faith. But the phrase not only is taken out of context that we use today, it's not even quite accurate. Because if you listen carefully to the scripture that was read, it did not say money is the root of all evil. It said the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And that's important. Because money actually is morally neutral. It's just a tool. And it's important that we talk about money because it represents us. 
We spend hours of our time and energy each week earning it. How we spend it declares ultimately what we value in this life. So it's an incredible resource to bless others or it can be a source of great pain when it holds an improper place in our lives. If you check almost any survey about marital conflict, you'll find that the number one issue that people argue about is money. And you can test that in your own relationship. Jesus talked about money incredibly. He talked about money more than he talked about love. He talked about money more than he talked about prayer. Eleven of his 39 parables are about money. And so this is important because when we cease to talk about it, when we consider money as a taboo subject, much like sex or politics, then we tend not to talk about it. And when we don't, as the church, talk about it, it leaves it open for the world to set the agenda, to establish the narrative, and often those are so far different from the dreams that God has for us and for the sacrificial life that we're called to live in the expression of how we spend our money. So let's see what we can learn today about this passage today and a few other scriptures to let money take its proper role in our lives. As I said, money is morally neutral. It's our relationship with money that matters. That means there's nothing wrong with having money. It means we don't need to apologize for having wealth. I personally believe some people are naturally gifted at making money. They're just really good at it. So they do well in the business world, and then it often becomes a resource in which they can do incredible good as well. I've seen wealthy people who are amazingly generous and poor people who are horribly selfish. It's what you do with that wealth that matters. But it is true that the love of money can become the source of many evils. Jesus even said, in fact, it's easier for a camel to squeeze through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter God's kingdom. Jesus said that because money can have incredible power over us. Because you see, in our society, money sometimes takes the place of God. Money promises happiness. Just think about the message that that is conveyed in commercial after commercial. Let me show you one. I did some early shopping this year. One for you, one for me. I love it. I got us a little something, too. Yeah? Yep. One for you and one for me. I love it. Oh, actually, that was supposed to be for me. I love it. And I love that you love it. I love it. I like it. I think that one's rather cute myself. But that commercial conveys so many things. I mean, first of all, how many of you buy his and her vehicles for Christmas? I, I shake my head and you see those every year. But that commercial plants seeds in our brains. It suggests bigger is better. It suggests somehow you can buy your way to marital happiness. It puts out a fantasy that always wants us wanting more. There's so many messages in our world that tell us that money can make us happy. Our world also tells us that money promises security. If you have enough money, and if you invest it in the right place with the right firm, then you'll be able to retire early and do whatever you want with the rest of your life. I like the story that's told about the Harvard MBA grad. He took a weekend vacation down to 
the Mexican resorts on the Bahama Peninsula. And he was at a dock and he saw a fisherman there, a local fisherman. And he had lots of yellowfin tuna. He asked the fisherman, how long did it take you to catch those fish? And he said, oh, a couple hours. He said, well, why don't you fish more? And he said, well, this is all the fish that I need to sell to support my family. Well, what do you do with the rest of your time? Oh, I'm a busy man, senor. I sleep late. I fish a while. I go home and have lunch with my wife, Maria. I take a siesta. I play with my children. And then after dinner, my, I play guitar with my amigos. And the NBA grad said, well, I could tell you, you can make a lot more money. Tuna is a hot commodity now. You fish a little longer, you make enough profit to buy a bigger boat, and then you can buy a fleet of boats. And with that profit, then you could actually start a processing plant and provide tuna to Los Angeles. And how long would this take, senor? Well, about 20 or 30 years. And then what, the fisherman asked. Well, then you could open your own office in Los Angeles. You could supply other cities. Eventually, you could open other offices. And when you're going strong, then you can announce an IPO and take your com company public. You would make millions. And then what would I do? Well, then you'd be set for life. You could retire to a coastal village, sleep late, fish a little, have a lunch with your wife, take a siesta, and play your guitar with your amigos. Money promises security. And finally, money promises significance. How many of us buy things just for the status that that purchase brings? Whether it's a certain house in a certain neighborhood in a certain town, or an outfit, a pair of jeans, the right kind of clothes, an expensive piece of jewelry, they make us feel like we belong with the people that we aspire to be like. I remember... When I was very young, my family buying a brand new car. It was a 1962 Chevrolet Bel Air. Not this one. Hang on. And I remember that feeling. I remember that new car smell. Well, in all my lifetime growing up, I, we never bought another new car. Dad just came to believe that that was a bad investment, so we always bought used cars. And that 1962 Bel Air... I was still driving when I went off to seminary. I remember in 1981 that that car had been, it had, we rebuilt the engine once. It had over 200,000 miles on it. And the floorboard was so rusted that I took last year's license plate and screwed it on the floorboard to cover up the hole that was there just to keep the elements from getting on my shoes. And then somebody stole the battery, so I had to total it. True. And we went out and bought that Ford Escort. It, it was a gold metallic, so it was a little better looking than that white one there. But I remember how excited it was to buy a brand new car once again, have that new car smell. And you know how long that lasted, that feeling, that joy? Maybe six months, right? And I got that first scratch, all of a sudden that car became just transportation. But that's what things do, don't they? That's the trouble with trying to buy happiness. Products make us happy for a while, and it quickly wears off. And then you have to get something better, something bigger, something somebody else has. 
You see, the danger with money is it tries to take the place of God. It is God that gives us happiness. It is God that gives us security. It is God that gives us significance. What we need in our life is not more money, but more significance. So how do you know? How do you know whether you are in danger of loving money and not just having money? And the clue comes when we look at the sixth verse here in 1 Timothy. It says, actually, godliness is a great source of profit when it is combined with being happy with what you already have. That's how you discern. Are you connect? Are you content with the money that you make? Could you actually live the rest of your life with the money that you make right now? There's a survey that was done, people of various incomes, they they question people that were on minimum wage, just barely getting by. And they asked them, how much money, more money would it take for you to be happy? And their answer was just 20% more. Same question was asked of people making about $60,000. Fairly comfortable living, but still, things can get tight from time to time. And they asked him, how much more money would it take for you to be happy? And their answer is 20%. They asked people that had inc- family income of $200,000 the same question. You know what their answer was? 20%. We always think if we have more, that will make us happy. You see, the secret to being rich is being content with what you have. It's learning to live with what you have been given in life. And here's the secret to finding contentment. It's found if we just keep reading in 1 Timothy We'd find these verses in 17 and 18. Tell people who are rich at this time not to become egotistical and not to place their hope on their finances, which are uncertain. Instead, they need to hope in God, who richly provides everything for our enjoyment. Tell them to do good, to be rich in the good things they do, to be generous, and to share with others. God gives us a method to find contentment, and it is being generous. It is giving. Greg Rochelle reminded me of something I think is very true. He he says, how many things have you purchased in your life that made you so happy that it moved you to tears? Now, I know you, you may buy that perfect house, that dream home, and yes, you're joyful and happy, but it didn't make you cry when you're at that closing? Well, maybe when you looked at the number that you're signing on for. Or when you got that new car, especially if maybe you had a midlife crisis and you you wanted that hot sports car and you got it, did it make you cry? Did it move you? And Greg Rochelle says, the times when I've been most moved is when I have been generous, when I've given to something that I see makes a difference, it provides nutrition for a child, otherwise that would die, when it provides education for someone that gives them opportunity. It's when I've been a part of my my church and we've together done something and our generosity has truly transformed a family's life. That's when I've been moved to tears. And I think that's so true. Just a few weeks ago, we had someone here in this service who came to church because of the generosity of one of our church ministries. And I was so moved when I saw them there. And I won't go into more detail because I don't want to embarrass them. But when I relayed that story in a private setting, I found myself choked with emotion to see that we had transformed, we had done something powerful in that person's life. Greg Rochelle is right. 
Money is a great, powerful source of good. And the way that we find that contentment is being generous. Generosity is God's method of ensuring money does not take God's rightful place in our lives. Let me close with this quote from John Wesley, who's the founder of Methodism. It reminds us that money's not evil, but it can be a great source for good. Money is an excellent gift of God, answering the noblest ends. In the hands of God's children, it is food for the hungry, drink for the thirsty, raiment for the naked. It gives to the traveler and the stranger where to lay his head. By it we may supply the place of a husband to the widow and of a father to the fatherless. We may be a defense for the oppressed, a means of health to the sick, of ease to them that are in pain. It may be as eyes to the blind, as feet to the lame, yea, a lifter up from the gates of death. Amen.